Yeah. Well, if you have your Bible, you can take it and turn to Luke chapter 2, the text that was read for you uh, earlier in the service. If you don't have a Bible with you, I invite you to uh, take one of those pew Bibles. It's the black bound book in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Luke 2 on page 857 of that copy of the Scripture. And uh, taking a little break from our series through the book of Acts so that we can focus on a Christmas text this morning, at least a text that we tend to associate with uh, Christmas time because it records the events around the birth of Jesus. And I want to ask us this question, something for us to think about here. What is so important about Christmas? What's so important about Christmas? This is a time when, as Keith alluded to, there's a lot of hype, there's a lot of um, of commercialism, there's a lot of decorations. So you could see the, the uh, gleaming decorations right here on our platform. We make a big deal out of it. Um, but if you think about uh, some of the heartaches that go around uh, that uh, accompany Christmas, it may make you wonder, why are, why are we celebrating this, this time after all? Uh, sometimes as you think about your past, maybe you've had Christmases with loved ones that are no longer with you. Uh, maybe you've had Christmases in which there was more to enjoy than this Christmas you have looking ahead of you. I had that thought uh, just this past week as I was reading an opinion piece in the Washington Post. And I want to read this to you because I think it highlights for many people uh, some of the angst and, 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 um, and heartache that comes around this time. Uh, this author writes this, I come from a Christian family and I recognize the significance of the holiday. I know the backstory. As a child in a church play, I turned in quite a nuanced performance as a camel. But I hated Christmas even then because my family didn't have money. We got practical presents in the good years, a scarf, new mittens, socks, and of course, the dreaded underpants. Our holiday tree glowing bright in the middle of the living room was a beacon to disappointment. I think what he says next here is really significant. I didn't like Christmas in part because the steel mill where my father worked had closed, but that did nothing to stop the commercials with shiny, happy children opening reams of colorful paper to reveal the things that they'd always wanted. The ads seemed to suggest that the more stuff you got, the better person you were. I learned through those commercials that good people got presents, and that my family was trash. I took it into me every year like communion. And his, the title of his article is Why I Hate Christmas. And it didn't end on a more positive note than that paragraph I, I read. So with these decorations all around us, and with probably a Christmas tree in your living room, and perhaps presents under your Christmas tree, we should ask the question, why or what is so important about Christmas? But as I begin to move into our text this morning to answer that question, I want to give you some background information on that that will actually, I think, for all of us, highlight the importance of asking this question even more. And I want to tell you about two uh, rocks that are now being housed uh, in the Berlin Museum in Germany and these rocks are important because of what is etched into them. Uh, they were discovered in uh, the ancient city of Priene in Turkey, what is that, modern-day Turkey. Um, and they're, so they're called the Priene inscription. You think, why are you telling me about rocks? This sounds boring. I'll tell you just <laughs> what's important about them. Um, they are significant because what is etched into these rocks is the announcement about the birth of a king. A birth of a king so great that his kingdom would end all wars 
and bring lasting peace for everyone. This king would be called a savior and God, and it was so, his, his birth was so important that from the, from the year of his birth onward, all calendars had to be completely reset so that his birth year would be counted as the first year number one from, from then on. And in fact, the Prian inscription said that the news about his birth is the beginning of the gospel. It uses the word gospel there. So it would come of no surprise to you to know that this king, the name of this king is found in our text. But it may surprise you where his name is found. It's found in verse 1 of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That inscription was dated back to 9 BC and was referring not to Jesus, but to Caesar Augustus. And it's hard to miss the iron. Actually, I want to quote to you from, from the part of the inscription that reads this. With the blessing of good fortune and for our own welfare, the Greeks in Asia decreed that the new year begin for all the cities on September 23rd, which is the birthday of Augustus. It's hard to miss the irony here. Now, when we want to know when Augustus was born, the date of his birth is measured by the birth of an infant who was born during his reign. It's hard to miss the irony that for this grand and, and pompous announcement, now nobody measures time by when Caesar Augustus was born, but every calendar in the world, even those that are not from Christian countries, have to reckon with the fact that all of time is now counted by the birth of this little vulnerable infant that was born to a family that couldn't even provide a nice room for him to be born in, Jesus. Now, let me ask a question again. What is so important about Christmas? I mean, what is so important about this event that now the entire world recognizes its significance, if not the real meaning of Christmas, at least the numbering of our years. What is going on here? Well, in our passage, we see many reasons why Christmas is important, but I'm going to point out just three. And, uh, and uh, I hope that, that the answer to this question will help, will help confront or at least uh, speak to some of the concerns that the author of that Washington Post opinion piece wrote. Why does Christmas seem to be all about capitalism, all about the, the rich dominating the poor or the powerful showing up the, those who are impoverished? Our text will supply many answers, but I want to point out just three. First of all, Christmas is important because it confronts us. Christmas is important because it confronts us. And by that I mean uh, that it challenges our assumptions about the way things work. And it confronts us by doing two things. First of all, it reveals something about us, and then it reveals something to us. I want to show us this in our text. You see, the Christmas and the events related to Christmas, that is the birth of Jesus, reveals something about us, and that is that we assume that the world works in a certain way. We assume that wealth and personality and charm and social status are the ways to get successful. We believe that, that power is the path to success. And yet the events of the Christmas story, that is events around the time that Jesus was born, 
tells us a very different story about the way that true success comes. It reveals something about us. You know, we tend to think that health and wealth and, and prosperity are the ways to uh, success. I get a little glimpse of this um, at times when I get sick, uh, when I feel weak. Uh, and many of you have been sick. Many of you may, who are viewing us online may be viewing us online because, because you're ill right now. See, I'm grateful for the, the physical health that I have right now, but when I do get sick, with that sickness comes a fear. And that fear is as often associated with the fact that I can't do what I normally do. And if I can't do what I normally do, then I don't have the value that I have. And if I don't have the value I have, it reveals that I believe that significance and value and success comes through my health and my strength. I mean, we have these beliefs about the way the world works and yet, and how the way, the way in which success comes. And yet the events of the Christmas story, the events around the time of Christ reveals us just the opposite. The currency that God uses is not the currency of power and wealth and prestige. The currency that God uses, he doesn't even care about those sort of things. When he wants to save the world, he sends a baby to an obscure region on the far-flung eastern rim of the Roman Empire. We see this in a couple of places in our text. We see this in the place in which Jesus was born. Uh, notice, we're going to go back a little bit in our text, actually. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Uh, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And, and these words have captured the imagination of people for the past 2,000 years because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus' family was crowded out. I, I cannot imagine the sense of desperation that Mary and Joseph had as they were going from, from house to house, from place to place, saying, is, the, is there any room here? Can we please stay? Don't you see my wife is very pregnant? She's starting to have contractions. Can we please have a bed? Can we please have some place for her to stay and lay her little newborn baby? But people are, are they say, they're sorry, there's no room. We're all full. There's no vacancies here. Remember when, I, when, when uh, Krista gave birth to our our children, I always wanted to make sure that there was a clear, safe path between our house and the hospital. I wanted to make sure that I knew how to get there because I know myself and in the frantic, my, my uh, frantic mind, I could lose my way or take the wrong turn. I want to make sure that there was no chance of me getting turned around or anything to obstruct because I wanted a safe place for our children to be born. And yet there was no room for Jesus to be born in a, in a nice environment instead of placing the little infant baby Jesus into a silk-covered crib, he was placed into a feeding trough that probably a few hours earlier, or perhaps a few minutes earlier, had been the place where goats had slobbered and smacked. That was where Jesus was laid. What's the meaning of this? God doesn't need wealth. God doesn't need any of the kinds of things that we assume are the tools to power and success. He doesn't need Caesar Augustus, and he doesn't need the Roman Empire. He doesn't need roads, and he doesn't need any of this. I mean, God can bring salvation to the world through a little baby born in a stable. 
We see this not only in the place in which Jesus was born, we see this also in the people to whom his birth was announced. Here are the shepherds. Now, being a shepherd was, it wasn't like, it wasn't like you got first dibs on the good juicy news to everything if you're a shepherd. It's like these are the guys who are the last to hear about all the important stuff. These are the guys who are just on the shift to, to be out. I mean, who wants the night shift? Nobody wants the night shift. They would rather be in their bed sleeping, yet there they are, out in the fields, watching their sheep, a very humdrum, boring kind of occupation. <laughs> it wasn't the worst job. It wasn't the best job. It was kind of like middle-level management. Here we are with the sheep, someone telling us what to do. And yet it was to these shepherds that the very first announcement came that Jesus was born. The Christmas story confronts us by exposing to us that our assumptions about the way to peace and success are not God's ways to peace and success. When God became our Savior, He did not come to Rome but to Bethlehem. He did not come to a silk-padded cradle, but to a manger filled with straw. He did not come to a, a Roman throne, but a Roman cross. That's how God saves the world. That's why Paul wrote in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, he says that the preaching about the cross of Jesus is foolishness to those who don't believe it. But to those who do believe it, it is the power of God. Why does God work this way? He works this way to turn our values upside down, to show us that our highest achievements are, are nothing to God. And God, He subverts the pride of human beings by showing us that He can save the world in a way nobody expected. He uses the weak things, the despised things, the things that are not that's why Paul said later on in his second epistle to the Corinthians that he had a thorn in the flesh and he begged God to take it away from him. And God said, this is how I work. God said, my strength is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Don't despise your weakness. And my friends, may I say that to you? Don't despise your weakness. Don't despise your ill health. Some of you would just got, you say, oh, let me admit, I'm weak socially, I'm weak financially, I, I don't feel very cultured, I don't feel very high on any kind of rung whatsoever. Those things are inconsequential to God. God wants to save the world, He bypasses the normal means. Why? So that our hearts will rest not in those means, but in God Himself. So the Christmas story, it does turn our values upside down, and, it, and it, it reveals something about ourselves. It reveals to us that we tend to idolize these, these things, but it also, it reveals something to us. It, reveals, it, it confronts us by uh, revealing something about us, but also reveals something to us, and we see this in what the shepherds experience there on the hills outside the city of Bethlehem. Look at verse 8. In the same region, there are shepherds out on the flock, keeping watch over their flock by night. And here's what was revealed to them. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they are filled with great fear. Literally, 
uh, this, this, me, this, this text says, they feared a great fear. But this is an intense kind of fear. Now, I just said that God reveals something about us, and that is he turns upside down our, our, our assumptions about the way to success and the way this world works. But it also reveals something to us, and that is when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's referring to the, the shining of the very godness of God. There's almost no better way to describe it than the, uh, God's glory as being God's very godness, uh, that about which, that about him that makes him God, that makes him utterly different than anything else that we know in this universe. It is the glory of God is, is the, the shining of his very godness, and it was this that that, was, that the shepherds were confronted with. Now, when it says that they were filled with a great fear, sometimes we can assume that the fear they experienced was just, whoa, whoa, that was surprising. I wasn't expecting that at all. And we can assume that the, the shepherds, in speaking of that fear, was kind of like, uh, I know I scared you, sorry, but I just have something to deliver to you. It was not a fear of just being startled or being surprised. The fear was in light of something different than just surprise, out of the ordinary. The fear was in light of the glory of the Lord. This is what caused them to, feel, to be filled with a great fear, to fear a great fear. Now, because the glory of the Lord, I don't know how much time this week you spent meditating on the glory of the Lord. Any of you, like, spent a lot of time meditating? It's so far from our, our minds, right? It tends to be so far from our thoughts. So let me try to bring us close to this understanding of what it would be to what would it be like to be confronted with the glory of the Lord? Do you know what it's like to be in the presence of someone who is um, quite a bit better looking than you or more in shape than you are or uh, a lot better than you are at something that you really, it's really important to you? If someone just stands next to you, and let's say it's good looks, and they're just so good looking and they're just like so in shape and it's just like their glory is just kind of outshining yours. What, what do you... What do you, how do you feel? You're kind of like, you know, I think I'm going to go stand next to people that are a little more my, my pace. I think because I don't feel as shabby when I'm with them. But you go into the presence of someone who just outshines you in the most important ways to you. And you're like, I, I just look bad next to them. It just, my flaw is just kind of, you know, everything about me doesn't look quite right next to that kind of beauty, that kind of uh, glory. And, and we tend to kind of pull away from those kind of people. Um, but what if you're in the presence of a being who outshone you in every important way? And what if it was a being that you couldn't get away from? In fact, that you didn't want to get away from because you discovered that, that what this being offers is something that I need. And yet the closer I get to this being, the shabbier I feel. And I almost feel like in this being's presence, I'm, I'm being x-rayed and all my flaws are just being put on this screen. What does that make you feel like, especially if it's something in those er very areas that you want to succeed? You, you, you feel like your, your whole self is unraveling. If, if we feel like that in the presence of another human being, can you just project your imagination into what you would feel like, the kind of feeling you would have if you were in the presence of, of the godness of God, the, the very thing that 
The, the very being who spoke the world into existence and who is responsible for the constant sustaining of the universe. I mean, this glory would not just make you feel like, I'm going to just kind of edge away, but this, the, the response to this kind of glory that the shepherds had was just like the response of every other human being throughout the Bible that experiences a, 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 has an experience like this. You, you find this with... Um, uh, with Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he has this vision of the Lord, high lifted up, sitting upon a throne, and the glory of the Lord is filling the temple. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm unraveled, I'm completely demolished in the presence of someone like this. Uh, Peter, the apostle, got uh, glimpses of this, even during Christ's earthly ministry. He said, after Jesus had done a miracle, he, he said, Lord, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. The apostle John, in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, had, had an exact same experience where he saw the glory of the resurrected Christ, and he fell down like he was dead. I'm just trying to give you an understanding of the fact that the, the fear that the shepherds experienced was not like a boo sort of fear. It was a complete unraveling of their, it was an existential fear. This is the experience that a person has in view of the glory of God. Now, I, I said just a little earlier that the one thing that the Christmas time reveals to us is that our normal assumptions about the way to power and to, and to peace, God, God reverses that. He inverts it completely. So that our, our highest accomplishments, the, the world's greatest achievements are not what brings about success. But what if you were to stand in the presence of God himself and who says, the currency of human success is not my currency. That would be to stand in the presence of someone in, in whose presence you need but you're afraid of. It would seem, my friends, it would seem that God's glory and our peace are completely at odds. The, the events of Christmas, it confronts us by showing that our assumptions about the way that to success are, are can be completely wrong. God works in a different way, but it also reveals God's glory to us. Now, and that fills us with great fear. Now, I have to transition like immediately into my second point. Christmas is important not just because it confronts us, it's also important because it comforts us. Okay, it comforts us. Because I've, 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 I've led us to the very ledge of being utterly terrified in the presence of God, uh, the, the glorious God, as were the shepherds. But the message of Christmas is not the message that God's glory has come to destroy you, to fill you with shame, to vex you, to unravel. The, what the angels are saying this, don't fear because... God's glory has come, and that doesn't mean fear for you. That means peace for you. I, I want you to pay attention to the logic of the angel. I think these words can become so familiar to us that we lose what the, how the angel is reasoning with the shepherds. They're filled with great fear. Verse 10 says, fear not. The coming of God in His glory is not something that should destroy, that will destroy you. It's not something that will fill you with great fear. The coming of God is something that fills you with comfort. And this again is, is typical of the way that God works. Whenever He comes to someone, their response is one of fear. And the next words out of God's mouth is, don't be afraid. Because my coming is not for your destruction, 
The coming of my glory is for your salvation. That's why the angel says, when the, when the heavenly host, that is the army of angels in verse 13, verse 14 comes, they say, glory to God in the highest. That was the thing that caused the shepherds to fear the glory of God in the highest. And they say this, and on earth peace. It's not glory to God or the peace of the world. It's glory to God and the peace of the world. It is the glory of God that brings us peace. It is that which initially, because of our, our, our sin and how flawed we are, that we could be completely filled with fear. And the angel is saying, no, 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 this is not the way it's working. The coming of God's glory, rather than bringing you fear, is intended to comfort you. And this is why Christmas is important. It not only confronts us, with our assumptions about the ways to success and the way the world works, it also comforts us. It brings us comfort. It assures us that God's glory and our peace are coming. How does it bring us peace? It brings us peace by showing us that God has come not as a crushing king, but as a savior. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. When, when we, and, and I, I think we tend to not get this because we have such a shallow view of the glory of God, but the more we, the more we think about, the more we meditate upon the fact that God is so glorious the more our hearts could be filled with fear were it not for this assurance. God's glory and your peace are not at war. God is for you. God is for you. That's the message of the angels. That's the message of the gospel, that when Jesus Christ has come to the earth, He, has says, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Not reform, not take the ladder of morality and try to climb rung after rung up to heaven. You can't do it. Instead, it is this, the kingdom of God has come. The king has come, and he's come as a savior, and that's good news. That's why the very essence of Christianity is, is called good news. In fact, the words of the angel, for I bring you good news of great joy, he's saying, I'm gospelizing you. It has the word gospel in it. He's saying, I'm bringing you the good news. What is the good news? It's that the savior has come. God is for you. He has come to save those who believe in Him, and that is good news for everybody. That is news that brings us comfort. It's comforting to know that our Savior, it would have been comforting in those days to know that our Savior is not Caesar Augustus, that our salvation is not the famous peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Our Savior is not capitalism or wealth or a job or presence under the Christmas tree. Our Savior is Christ the Lord, a Christ who shows us who God truly is. The Christmas event, Christmas is important because God comes to comfort us. We may ask, how is this possible that at Christmas time, God shows us who He is? This is one of the things that so many people struggle with. What is God like? 
if you just let your conscience tell you what God is like, you might conjure up an image of an accusing judge all the time. If you let the culture tell you what God is like, you'll get all kinds of confused ideas. But if you let Jesus tell you what God is like, you'll see a God who is full of truth and mercy, of love and compassion. A God who not only knows about your suffering, but who himself became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A God who not only wipes away tears as good as that would be, but a God who weeps with us as he did with Lazarus' sisters outside the tomb of Lazarus. This is who our God is. This is the question that one of Jesus' disciples asked Jesus in John 14, show us the Father and that would be good enough. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know who God is? You want to know what he's like? Do you want to know how compassionate he is? Look at Jesus. This is what God has done at Christmas time. He has entered human history and showed us who he is and what he's like. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the novelist, crime novelist, Dorothy Sayers. Um, she uh, she's a, a, was a British lady, and uh, she was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. And um, in one of her um, crime novels, the main character was a single man, a genius, but a lonely guy, unmarried. And in one of those novels, uh, Dorothy Sayers introduced a new character, a woman who seemingly coincidentally, was one of the first in her novel, one of the first to graduate from Oxford University, who was herself a novelist. And people who have studied Dorothy Sayers' novels observe that it seems that Sayers is writing herself into the novel. In fact, her character in that novel falls in love with the protagonist and, and saves him in a, in a way. It's almost as if you can see the parallel here. How are we going to know who God is? How are we going to know what he's like? It's as if God has written himself into the story of humanity so that we can know what he's like. But God has done better than that. He's actually entered human history. He's actually experienced what we experience. He is the sympathetic. That is, he feels, he's the high priest that feels what we feel and know what we go through. He has done that to reverse the, the curse that marks every page of our story and to make all things new. Christmas is important because it confronts us. It's important because it comforts us, but also it's important because it changes us. It changes us. And this is my final uh, point here as we observe uh, in the text what happened to the shepherds. Notice in verse 15, after hearing this incredible announcement, um, most likely what would have struck them as being an incredibly improbable announcement, that the Savior, the long-anticipated Messiah, was born as a baby, and he'd be wrapped in these swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough. What do they do? Well, they had a choice. They could have been like, this is the craziest thing we've ever heard. I don't know what just happened, but it must have been a really weird dream. Let's go back to these sheep. No, they said in verse 15, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. 
Skip over to verse 20. And the shepherds returned. What did they return to? Martin Luther, who is uh, one of the well-known as a uh, reformer um, of the Protestant Reformation, he makes his observation about this text. He said, isn't it interesting, the shepherds didn't shave their heads and run off to a monastery. They didn't, they didn't uh, put on some sort of hair shirt and go into the desert. Or, uh, they, they went back to their flocks. They went right back to doing what they had been doing. It's almost as if, for them, nothing had changed, but everything had changed. They, they go back to their same occupation, but they go back to it with a completely different mindset. You look at, read on. It says, they returned, in verse 20, and how do they return? Glorifying and praising God. See, when, when, when the message about Christmas truly grips your heart, when it enters into you like communion, when you drink it in by faith that Jesus truly has come, that God has revealed Himself to us, that the message of the good, the good news of, that Jesus proclaims is that the kingdom of God has come and that by faith you could enter into it. What does that do to you? It sends you right back to your old occupation but in a completely new way. God didn't call the shepherds. He could have, but He didn't call them out into the desert to be hermits. He didn't call them all He could have to a foreign mission field. He called them back to their sheep, back to watch over their flock, but in a completely different way. Now they saw their sheep with a new purpose. Now they saw their old career, the career that they'd always been a part of, but with a fresh vision for it. Now their vision was to praise and glorify God. It could, be, it could seem to them that shepherding was a very menial task. And yet, when you look back to the Bible, you'll notice that some of the greatest rulers of Israel's history had been shepherds. Moses, for example, had been a shepherd for 40 years before the Lord called him to lead the people of Israel out of, out of Egypt. David, before he became king, the greatest king of Israel, had first been a shepherd. You see how God dignifies such a, a mundane calling when it's done for the glory of God. My friends... Christmas is going to pass. It's going to be Christmas of 2021 in the books before we, before we know it. And come January, you're going to be back at your job. <laughs> but if the, if the if meaning and events of Christmas sink deeply into your heart and mind, then you can return to your fields, as it were, rejoicing and praising God for everything He has done. No task done for the glory of God is a menial task. I mean, some of you are, are stay-at-home moms, stay-at-home dads. Some of you are cart elderly parents to and from their appointments. Some of you work, you work as teachers, you work as mechanics, you work as, as in, in the finance world. Whatever God has called you to do, do it for the glory of God. The shepherds returned. Everything was the same. But nothing was the same because they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You remember at the beginning when I read that article from the Washington Post um, opinion piece to you, I thought it was so significant that the author, um, he knew what he was doing when he said that when he would look at the Christmas presents, he would look at the commercials in which these kids got everything they wanted and it seemed like the way to happiness was by the way, the way to getting stuff. He said, I took this into me like communion. 
a faith-building exercise, but a faith in something how despairing. My friends, we can take the, the truths of Christmas into us, believing that God's way to salvation is the way of humility, the way of when God wanted to save the world, he condescended to become a human being. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life and died a death for all of us, for those who believe in him to be saved. Would you bow your heads with me? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed to have a time of just concentrated focus on, on the words of God, would you consider, in a moment, we are going to take communion. We are going to, um, we are going to remember what Jesus has done for us. And we are going to do so in such a way that will remind us what Jesus has done in dying on the cross and rising again. But if you're here this morning and you would have to admit, just frankly and honestly, I have not trusted in Jesus. I've, I'm outside this, this thing of faith. My friend, you can believe today. You can trust in Jesus, the King, the Savior today. You can swear allegiance to Him. And if you do, my friend, the Bible assures us, God assures you that you can be a new person, rescued from the sins that so easily bind you. Our Father, I pray that these words, this good news would sink deep into our hearts and truly comfort and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name.